Digiday podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm the senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Seb Tomich, who is the chief commercial officer of The Athletic. Uh, Seb, previously uh, one of the execs at The New York Times, which bought The Athletic a little over a year ago at this time. And in that time, The Athletic, which you know was a didn't have an advertising business, was purely subscription, has launched an ad business. And Seb's running that business, right? Yeah. So I wanted to have Seb on the podcast because a lot of their advertising business, I guess, launch strategy, if you want to call it that, is centered around large tentpole sports events and trying to really compete for market share during those moments. And with the Super Bowl coming up this weekend after the episode gets released, it felt like a a kind of you know, kismet time to really be talking about how that strategy is going. And so we got into um, how the World Cup had performed for their kind of like debut into advertising and how that strategy kind of netted out, but also how their forward-looking strategy for this year is really centered on these 10-pole events and trying to show up in areas that kind of had, uh, you know, other competitors have had a head start for, you know, upwards of a year or two. So, um, yeah, we get into a little bit of that. And then we talk about some other revenue strategies as well um, in the back half of the conversation. What's one of the other revenue strategies that stood out to you in the conversation? We touched on subscriptions, of course, because that had been so, you know, central to their business model for, you know, the years before the Times took over. Uh, But we also talked about audio um, advertising revenue, which they have had um, in the mix since before the acquisition. Um, And that was their like one kind of foot in the door with advertising. And we talked about how audio and podcasting has surprisingly stayed strong, um, which our our colleague Sarah Guaglioni has been covering. But that advertising category has been pretty strong for them, um, despite, you know, the larger economic shifts in advertising being, you know, relatively down. So while there might be challenges around launching an ad business right now, uh, podcast and audio has been, at least according to Seb, a, a pretty strong area for them. Goodness for us, those two people who co-host a podcast. Uh, <laughs> Excellent awesome. news for us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look forward to the conversation. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Seb, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am doing great. All right. So I know we chatted not too long ago, and our last conversation was, I think, happening during the France-Morocco match during the World Cup. (laughs) And so that conversation was very much focused around how large tentpole sports events have been helpful in launching an advertising business um, for a sports publication, The Athletic. Um, But I wanted to have you on the podcast right now because this episode is going live right before the Super Bowl, which is another very like marquee moment in the sports world. And so I wanted to chat a little bit further about how tentpole moments in the sporting industry have continually been something that you are using to launch an advertising business right now. Um, And if, you know, your strategy around the World Cup was kind of a one-off approach to how you're building a business or if things like the Super Bowl and things like, uh, you know, March Madness and uh, the Women's World Cup coming up, um, if those are still kind of key moments for how your sellers are approaching launching an advertising business right now, especially in a market that is unfortunately a little uh, lackluster. Lackluster. Uh, um, The short answer is yes. 
Yes, it plays a big role. Um, I'm remembering our conversation. So I was probably in a really good mood because the uh, Morocco, uh, the Morocco game was one of the best I've seen. Uh, if we're talking about the Morocco-Spain game that went into, was it Morocco-France or Morocco-Spain? I think it was France-Morocco because you had said at the time that if oh, France won, right. is, Mbappe and Messi going to be good for business. Good business. Yes. Yeah, that was the uh, that was the conflict of interests because uh, I definitely wanted Morocco to win, and um, but unfortunately, an Mbappe-Messi final uh, was going to be one for the ages, and it definitely turned out to be arguably the best soccer game ever played. Um, we can use that. The World Cup as an example. Um, you know, we taking a step back, like looking at the opportunity for the athletic. Um, you know, we we see a very big opportunity to be one of, if not the most influential global sports media companies. And I'll use uh, sports moments as uh, an example of that. One of one of the things that I see out in the sports media market is just how regional a lot of the media coverage is because so much of it is rooted in broadcast coverage and when you have a media company that's rooted in being able to watch a game live it's probably only going to be relevant in the market that you can watch it and because the athletic is rooted in written journalism it has an opportunity to be more global than any of these other companies and the interest in sports is greater than ever um, you know, we've put some numbers out there that are 100 million people uh, in the U.S. alone who have a strong interest in sports journalism. That's just in the U.S. That's not global. So if you think about the skyrocketing interest in global soccer, the growth of the interest in the NBA and Asia, of course, there are other sports like cricket in India, which have huge followings um, that we don't cover. Um, it all points to this massive opportunity. Sports of course, has these moments that bring together the, pa the passionate fan and the casual fan. And those tends to be these big moments like the World Cup. So if you think about the athletic, um, at our core, we are for passionate fans. We want all passionate fans that care about their team, league, or sport and have enough interest to where they're going to want to read about it in between the games. Um, if you look at these sports moments, they have this uncanny ability, I think, unlike any other type of moment in culture, to bring together a lot of people all around the same moment at once. And for marketers, of course, this is tried and true. Um, I would argue that these types of moments are probably more scarce than ever, like moments where you know that you can attach your brand to something where you're going to, again, gonna have hundreds of millions of people, if not billions in the case of the World Cup, that are all tuning in to watch something. So for our ad business, this means, um, I would say, actually, editorially, this means when we do have these moments reorienting a bit um, to get the passionate fan plus the casual fan, and you saw that in our World Cup coverage. So like if our day-to-day... Our, uh, -day Football coverage, I should say, to be true to it. Our day-to-day -day football coverage is very much like go deep on your um, on the biggest stories in football. We have a reporter on every single team in the Premier League. We've got reporters on Barcelona and Real Madrid. Um, but when it comes to the World Cup, we've got to cover the biggest athletes in the world, the stories about Messi, the stories about Mbappe, um, the stories about Neymar and the Brazilian team. So the stories that everybody can cover. And then for the ad business, um, this was a learning lesson for me because I don't come from the world of sport. 
Um, and you and I talked about this in our last our last interview. Um, I learned really quickly. We we acquired the athletic in February, and the World Cup was in November. And right off the bat, you know, we knew this was going to be be a big opportunity. I had gone out into the market and called on relationships, people that I knew at some of the big big World Cup sponsors, and a lot of what I got back was we've been planning for this for you know two to four years. Like, let's talk about twenty twenty six. Let's talk about the Women's World Cup. Like. Uh, very, very hard to have uh, a creative conversation this late in the game. You know, that said, we did catch up quickly. Um, we managed to have some creative programs with brands like uh, Emirates and Paramount Plus and uh, Google, which we uh, actually ended up focusing on um, women's sports, but again, put some media around the Men's World Cup. Um, there's a list of more uh chanel which we did our, our launch sponsorship with um all to say that was our first that was our coming out party the beautiful thing about the sports calendar is there seems to be one moment every month uh and that list seems to be growing as well um so you know this time in four years we might be talking about the world pickleball championships and all the sponsors that we put next to it i would definitely tune into that I was a pickleball champion in my middle school gym class. Um, other sports, not really my forte. However, um, I am curious how you mentioned that these events kind of happen once a month, give or take. Has it been less challenging now? I know you still have a lot of kind of outbound focus in your sales strategy, but has it been less challenging um, to kind of win some of those dollars for – I guess let's use the the Super Bowl for example, right? Because that one I know has a lot of marketing spend behind it, a lot of you know dollars that are allocated towards it. Has it been as challenging as it was with the World Cup to kind of get your hand in the game, given the mm -hmm. fact that you know what what you were saying with the World Cup, some of those budgets are being planned you know years in advance. How has it been with these other monthly moments kind of since then? Well, I think the the forces that we have to fight against or just the fact that we're new. Like we started in 2016. We were acquired by the Times last year. Um, we only had an ad capability uh, launched in September and our team has basically just been put together. So um, many of the conversations we're having are just to introduce marketers to the athletic and tell them what we're about. I'm the, the excitement about what we're talking about comes through like, Every I can speak for everybody on the team where there's just this strong belief and passion in what we're doing. Like the I don't see anything else like the athletic out there. Um, if I look at the world of sports media again, um, I see a world dominated by broadcast players. And that world is being consolidated more and more and more, and very likely will be consolidated into like three to four companies that also are selling you household goods and uh, laptops and phones um, and maybe some cartoon characters as well. Um, so, you know, a, a, a few companies, um, I, as a, as an avid sports fan who has spent my whole life going to ESPN about every five minutes, I don't think I've ever met anybody who talks about how great ESPN's digital product is. The, I, I put up with it because I, I have to. Um, but particularly as I became more passionate about my teams, 
like a Manchester United who I like live and die for. And I, like, you just cannot give me enough information for that. I was drawn to the, what the athletic does. Like you just, just give me more, anything about my team, just give me more and more and more and more and more. And so if you look at the, and the athletic gave it to me and same thing goes for, you know, Russell ref book trade rumors. I, I, I cannot read enough about this. Um, as long as I know that it's coming from a real journalist and it's probably true, um, I want it. And the, the list goes on, the Dodgers, anything to do with UCLA college basketball. So we have this interesting predicament where if you know about the athletic, you love us. But at this present day, not a lot of people know about us. And so one of the big things that we have to do in a room is get not only marketers excited about uh, the ad offering, but also just excited about the athletic as a consumer product. And so these sports moments, particularly, um, I found interesting because they're very, there seems to be a lot of legacy relationships, uh, a, a lot of tried and true ways of doing things. Um, sports media marketing is, uh, seems uh, surprisingly traditional sometimes. Um, again, I just think that there's a way of doing things that have gone on for a very long time. And so we come in with something new. I think, um, you know, we expect some quick wins, but at the same time, we're willing to be patient as well. I think in uh, some cases, like we're going to get a no because we're new. And, you know, as you said, uh, I don't want to use the word lackluster, but it's uh, a, uh, there's, there might be less to fight for at the moment in the ad market. So we have to be a little patient, but when they are ready to try someone new, we're here and we have an amazing offering. And it doesn't matter whether it's the Super Bowl, um, you know, and us sending the athletic football show podcast hosts on the ground to report a show, or if it's, you know, the uh, NFL draft and what we're going to do with the beast or whether it's the all-star game and no dunks, like we're going to have people on the ground. We're going to have an amazing product. So if there's a marketer that has interest in those moments, we will have something for them. And I think um, one of part of what you were saying about this, need to really make sure the athletic is um, being presented to marketers and having those conversations and, you know, introducing the athletic to people who aren't familiar with it yet. Um, I, one of the stories I, um, this would have come out, I think, three weeks ago now from when this episode is live. But uh, one of the stories I wrote for me, it was just a week ago, uh, is about how Q1 is kind of pacing 10 to 25% behind what, um, some publishers were forecasting. Thank you. Um, but for that story, one of the publishers in it had referenced the fact that getting client meetings right now has been extraordinarily difficult. And it wasn't until, um, you know, towards the end of January that that started to switch gears a little bit. And I am curious, you know, with the amount of outbound meetings that you're um, prioritizing in your plan, has it been difficult to even get marketers to to chat with you right now or agencies for that matter? Like how has the client meeting side of the sales strategy been pacing for January so far? I have the benefit of uh, leading the charge for um, for a company that's getting into advertising for the first time. And so one of the benefits of that is that you're always going to get the first meeting. It's, uh, it's the second and third meeting that become a lot more challenging to get, but I've got a thousand clients that to meet with just to show off what we're doing. And I, I have to believe, I do believe, and the team believes that this is always going to be a meeting worth taking. Like, let alone, you know, if you're, um, 
if you're marketing uh, timber and have no interest in advertising in sports, but are a diehard sports fan, you're still probably going to take this meeting because it's the athletic and it's fascinating. Um, and if you're marketing to any kind of sports community, we're, you know, I think I talked about this with you last time, just like how we think about segmenting the business and, you know, the, the opportunities around men's lifestyle, particularly, um, sports entertainment. And then of course, any brand that has a relationship to sport, we're going to have an angle and likely an expert in house. Um, that we can either bring to a meeting or bring some type of new knowledge to a meeting to get someone excited. And so, no, I have not seen any kind of um, decline in meetings, but my uh, year-over-year comp is uh, zero. We did not have a team in January of last year. So definitely up regardless. It's up. It's, if we had one meeting, we'd be up. Um, but uh, But I would say we are... We are not seeing any type of challenge in terms of getting meetings. Um, of course, you know, booking, you know, booking ad dollars in a in a contracting market is always going to be more challenging than a growing market, but it helps a lot to be new. And it also, you know, there's a huge benefit to being able to build something from the ground up. We're mm-hmm. not spending any time trying to unwind any kind of like legacy system or antiquated antiquated way of working with advertisers, we get to start fresh. Let's talk about kind of the macroeconomic climate right now, um, as fun as all those buzzwords are. Um, Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it is obviously challenging to get dollars booked, whether it's because budgets are being approved later or, um, you know, there's more competition over, you know, fewer dollars in general. But I am curious how this quarter so far, I mean, we're what, four weeks in, how it's been pacing based on your forecast for what you were expecting for 2023. Um, I guess, can you elaborate any further on how much of a struggle it's been to to sign deals or, or get advertisers in those second and third meetings versus what you were maybe anticipating for the year? Well, you know, I can't talk about that. Uh, and we have earnings coming up, I believe, next week. Um, so you get to tune in for that in terms of how we uh, performed in Q4 and our outlook for the beginning of the year. Um, I can just speak broadly to our plans. Um, we have a have a plan uh, to be profitable by 2025. Um, we have a plan to substantially grow our advertising business. And again, you know, we're starting from scratch in some areas. We did have an audio ad business before. Um, but largely from scratch. Um, and, you know, as of the end of Q3 of last year, uh, everything is on track. So I'm, I will just keep pointing back to the overall opportunity. Like, again, you know, macroeconomic challenges aside, and I'm really trying to avoid using that term because I think it's just become, you know, it's, it's like the opening to every single sentence. Um, we are, we are building from the ground up. So, you know, with a year-over-year comparison of, of uh, a very small business, again, it was just just audio last year. Um, we're really excited about our opportunity. And then I look, uh, I look long-term and I see a business, back to your like first question about how these moments uh, play in, I see a really healthy 
multi-revenue stream business where we are thinking about in the world of advertising um, moments and franchises. So big sports moments on the calendar, franchises that we can attach brands to with top tier talent at the center. And also really interesting revenue lines like ticketing, betting, merchandise. So things that can add value to sports fans' lives. And then there is the wild world of IP and all the places that we can tell stories off the athletic that also represent business opportunities. So things we could potentially do with streamers and little documentaries and scripted series and things like that. So all this stuff um, has me fired up like every morning to kick the door down, um, which is a really fun place to be, challenging market aside. And I'm again, I'm, I'm speaking for the team, which I hope would all agree they feel the same too. And so definitely want to get into those other revenue streams. And I know subscriptions have been a, a, a core part of the athletics um, business as well. But before that, I did want to ask about kind of your approach to programmatic because when we last spoke, you mentioned you were kind of opening that door, experimenting with that revenue stream a bit, um, wanting to make sure that it stays like a very premium experience. But has programmatic become a more, um, I guess, central focus or a, a growth area for this year? And and what's your kind of mindset around it? I view it as I view it as money. So it's money, and it's money we can turn on and off. And um, I. I'm I'm a big just pers- personally I have a I have a bias towards uh, great design like and I tend to find that programmatic advertising can infringe on that so I'm always pretty cautious uh, particularly when you have a product where people are paying for it directly um, so I'm never going to say programmatic is a central focus I think programmatic is a it's a way to generate revenue and again like you always have the opportunity to turn it on and off uh, it is on right now. Um, and it's on as, as long as we need it. Um, the thing I would say to the team is, uh, the more we sell directly, the less we sell programmatically. So, uh, please sell more. And, um, from a quality perspective, um, you know, generally what I'm finding right now is, um, it's, it's benign. Like, of course, there's the things that come through that, that I don't love, but, um, they tend to be pretty isolated, and uh, we've been able to maintain this healthy balance with, you know, getting some programmatic advertising in, but at the same time maintaining the premium experience that uh, makes people feel good about paying us directly. Yeah, and so I guess I'm curious in your kind of sales strategy, is it a focus on programmatic guaranteed when you can do it? It sounds like you have some open marketplace. Um, business as well. Um, and I ask because the story I'm working on for today, which will have come out a week ago by the time this goes live, sorry, listeners, for all the, the time jumps, um, is about how uh, open marketplace RPM, CPMs are down, I think, 55% year over year for some publishers, whereas programmatic guaranteed is up upwards of like 30% um, in revenue compared to Q3 last year. Um, curious how your sales team is maybe prioritizing one versus the other. If if you've noticed like CPM variations at all, again, you're just turning on the, the spout now. But curious, I guess, in looking at the prioritization of one over the other, it sounds like open marketplace is when you need it, but how has kind of programmatic guaranteed come into play if that's... Um, 
something you're you're currently selling? Not we are selling it, not particularly a focus. Um, year over year, our CPMs are up. So uh, our programmatic CPMs are up. I, um, yeah, I get, as you said, open, open market, on and off, programmatic guarantee is an option, but certainly not a focus. Definitely what you started with at the beginning, sports movements, huge focus for the team. That's where the conversations are starting, moments and franchises. Um, Programmatic guarantee is a way to transact has come up a couple of times, but it's really not a focus for the athletic. Got it. Fair, fair. All right, cool. So I want to kind of switch gears and chat about subscription strategy a little bit as well. Another area I've been um, covering lately, really trying to unpack whether or not subscription businesses are being impacted the same way um, as the advertising business has been for publishers with the mindset that readers are cutting costs a little bit here and there, budgeting a little bit more effectively um, with, you know, inflation and just being aware of what's going on. Um, Some, I guess, of the reporting I've done so far has indicated that churn rates are a little bit higher on average, um, only by maybe 1% to 2% max. Um, Retention rates are a little bit lower. But I am curious how your subscription business has been pacing. If you are seeing it as like a growth area right now, if you have large ambitions for increasing subscriptions in 2023, or if there's more of an effort to maybe get people registered over subscribed initially, um, which, you know, might be helpful in an advertising capacity. But anyway, we'd just love to hear kind of about the state of the subscription business. The, the subscription business is um, is just in the way the subscription business is, is core to the New York Times Co. So every, if you look at our, what we're calling the uh, subscription bundle, uh, New York Times, uh, Wirecutter Cooking, uh, game slash Wordle, uh, and now the athletic. Um, think of these things as you, know, you have to be able to answer two questions for us to be in a space. Um, can we create the single best piece of content in that space? And can we get people to pay for it? And if you can answer those two questions, then we have a real viable business. And so no matter for, for anything we launch or acquire, it's going to have a subscription component. Um, in the case of the athletic, no different, rooted in a subscription business since its founding. Uh, it was the fastest growing new subscription business in the market when it went from zero to 1.3 million fast um, in a very fast pace. Uh, and we don't expect that to change. Um, a lot of the focus last year was adding the athletic to our uh, our subscription bundle. So both as a way to um, retain existing subscribers, attract new subscribers to the bundle, but then also use our know-how and marketing techniques to get new subscribers to the athletic. All of those things um, are happening and that business remains something we're really excited about. Same thing I would say, as I had said to you earlier, applies to any specifics. You will hear anything, uh, anything specific in our earnings call next week. Yeah, definitely. I know you guys have been talking about the bundle kind of strategy for the past few earnings calls, if not, uh, you know, past couple of years. But um, it's been an interesting thing to follow. And I think other publishers have been trying similar strategies as well, pairing non-news content with uh, news in order to make sure people are sticking around for different variations of content. 
one of the questions I did have around um, retention, which you had mentioned was part of the bundle strategy, but um, one of the, I guess, stories I've been following is kind of the use of prioritizing annual subscriptions over monthly subscriptions because annual tends to have a higher retention rate over monthly. I know there are some people who are just wanting to pay a smaller fee every month. Um, Anyway, I'm curious how you're kind of approaching one over the other when it comes to retention and and growth um, for subscribers. Like, have you noticed higher retention rates for one over the other? Is there an annual kind of prioritization for The Athletic this year at all? Again, something I've been kind of hearing from other publishers, but mm-hmm. curious curious what you might be seeing on that end. I think we try a lot of different offers. Um, I think these things vary. We have, we've had annual plans. We've had um, monthly plans. We have obviously seasonal offers that you may see. Um, there's no one specific strategy that we're leaning into, um, aside from ensuring we have the right offer at the right moment. And it's a fairly dynamic process. Um, and I think, again, like you'll see this reflected in where the athletics shows up and is marketing to you. And so we have a variety of different offers. I couldn't point to one working better than the other. It really depends on uh, the audience and what they're interested in. Yeah, for sure. I am also curious if the subscription business has, um, or if the addition of the advertising business has modified your approach to subscriptions at all as well, whether that's changing, you know, a paywall structure, if you've been a little bit more lenient with how much access, uh, you know, readers get before they are introduced to a subscription, what's the kind of relationship between the two businesses? Because I think that's always a really interesting and important focus for publishers who are really kind of, you know, playing in both fields. Yeah. I think we, um, I, I, I would imagine that that story of like the binary choice between subscriptions and advertising or, or conflict between the two will kind of dissipate over the next two years. Like the, it, I, I certainly don't view it that way. I think this just really comes down to, can you maintain quality? And so like, do you have a product that people want to pay for? Number one. And I don't, I've said this before, like I don't, I certainly, when offered a choice, will always choose that free. Um, of course. Uh, so, I mean, with with rare exception, I think the only exception might be a magazine, actually potentially a newspaper too, but a print product. But in the digital world, if I'm going to choose advertising or no advertising, I choose no advertising. The question is, are you really to pay to get out of advertising? Uh, I'm not convinced there's a market there. And I think more more importantly, um, probably a lot of which was fueled by the kind of VC boom in publishing. Um, you know, VCs tend to get attracted to compelling narratives, and one of those narratives will be this ad free future where you charge, you know, super fans um, a lot of money for something that doesn't have advertising is very pure and. I don't think it has necessarily played out that way. And I think the best business model for a media company is a sound business model. And that involves many revenue streams. And then the the trick is, I think, again, like the number one thing you can't infringe on is the product that people are paying for. Um, But so as long as you can maintain that, I think it's, it's 
fairly intuitive then how advertising can fit it. And large and largely we've we found that. Of course, we added advertising to the athletic last year. And of course we got some initial pushback. But at the end of the day, the product itself is still amazing. And if there's a few ads on the page, people are willing to live with that to get the journalism. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that except for pre-roll. I'll pay to get out of pre-roll any day of the week. It's just just awful. That I agree with. Um it is one thing about YouTube I would potentially be willing to pay for. I, I pay uh, to get out of, I hate to say it, but uh, I pay to get out of your role on YouTube. So I, I don't know how many, yeah, I pay for YouTube premium. Um, and I, I do not think I would 100% pay ESPN a uh, monthly fee to not cut my highlights into five-second clips that I have to watch and a 30-second ad before seeing the five-second clip. Yes. The pre-rolls that are any longer than five seconds are infuriating. Um, so I, I'm with you on that one, for sure. I am also curious, you mentioned that audio advertising has been something that you've been, uh, has been part of your business since, you know, before the addition of advertising across all of the platforms. I'm curious how um, that business has been performing because uh, my colleague, Sarah Guaglioni, has been covering the podcasting business and the trends in that area for some time. Curious how, um, if there's been an impact on podcast and audio advertising at all during this kind of, again, challenging economic climate. I know that that's not a fun phrase, but I am curious if that business has been steady for you guys, if it's been dropping at all. What's the, I guess... I uh, have a lot of history in podcast advertising. Um, the podcasts have had a boom for the last four years, four or five years. Um, I think like any medium, it's uh, it's not immune to the same challenges that video and display have faced. So think of um, those two mediums, the rise of the platforms, better targeting, programmatic options, bringing down rates. Um, marketers who went directly to publishers at first, but then, um, you know, started scrutinizing costs more and rates more and targeting more. So all of the same factors play out. Um, I think there are some unique things to podcast advertising. One, I think the relationship with the talent is, is very tight in a way that's unique for advertisers. So you see this in host red ads, they just work really well. So this is something the athletic can really lean in on. I think it's harder in news, just from my experience at the times. Like you don't see a lot of, uh, you know, it's very hard to imagine Michael Barbaro like reading an ad for one of my favorite products, Bomba Socks. Um, yeah, it gets a it gets a little murky from a I guess journalistic ethical standpoint on the news front. Totally understand that. Um, but yeah, so sorry to cut you off. Continue with that. You're, you've, you've got it. So I think, you know, I'll use a good example. Like uh, Robert Mays, the host of the athletic football show, uses a Peloton. And right now he's host reading Peloton ads. And it feels very natural because he loves his Peloton. Um, and the audience notice, notices that. So I think in the case of, I look at writ large podcast market, more podcasts than we need. But we've had, we're probably going to feel some effects of that gold rush mentality. As always, you're going to have um, the niche things that survive and the really great big things that survive. And it tends to be the things in the middle that fall out. 
And then I think for media media businesses like ourselves, it's how do we reorient around those two things? And so for the athletic audio, we need to create the best shows in any sport that we're in. And that's going to come from, could come from news. It could come from leaning into our nerdiness. It could come from being really fun, like we have with, with no docs. Like it's going to be a variety of those things. And then on the niche side, you know, we've got over 70 shows. There are some shows where I use, for example, like our show on the Vancouver Canucks. Those fans are crazy and they love that show. Uh, and so that will stay. It's not going to have a huge audience. Um, and the market for national brand advertisers who are looking to target Vancouver Canucks fans might be pretty small, um, but it's still worth it for us. But again, it's those things in the middle that will continually see fall out. And with the kind of evolution of what programmatic looks like in the audio space, has that been something you've tested at all? Is it something that you're kind of staunchly against? I have had a few guests on here who fall one way versus the other, but I am curious, you know, with it being an option right now, um, has that been, a, I guess, advertising format that you've welcomed or started using at all? We welcome it. We welcome it. Same, I think, again, I go back to like audio is, is no different in some ways than any other medium. So programmatic is money um, and it's something we turn on and off and it's on right now. Um, so we've got our great partners at Megaphone. Um, we're backfilling our inventory. Um, I would say in terms of our direct sales efforts, like I've, I've been saying this for the last two years, like if we're selling the same things the platforms are selling, we're going to get our lunch eaten. And we already saw that happen with display and video. So in audio, we're going to lean into the things that we can do uniquely. And for us, that's going to be any way to tie brands to our talent, either through host reads or custom segments or any other creative tie-in that can't be commoditized on an open platform. But if we're selling 30-second audio ads with worse targeting and higher rates, we're toast. Got it. So in the last few minutes, I do want to talk about some of those other revenue streams that you mentioned you're very excited about. Uh, I think you used the phrase, kick the door down in the morning. Um, but so you mentioned ticketing, um, IP, and uh, other, I guess, licensing avenues. But I am curious kind of maybe like what the timeline kind of looks like for getting those things in motion and what what it looks like to you. I think ticketing could be, you know, very broad, but I also think that IP licensing around like say documentaries is something that's been in play for a while for media companies. So we'd love to kind of hear about your outline for those various revenue streams and maybe when you see them kind of coming into play. Definitely. And so I, I'm going to treat um, things like ticketing, merchandise, betting a little different than the world of IP. Um Ticketing, merchandising, betting, like I'm thinking of these things, we are thinking of these things uh, as ways that we can add value to sports fans' lives. And they happen to also be ways we can make money too. So what a perfect, perfect intersection. Um, like, like betting or not, a sizable portion of our audience is betting on sports. And so it makes sense for us to have some type of offering. So in this case, we have great partners at BetMGM. We have uh, betting content. We have uh, exclusivity with them. Um, we have them providing odds. We are not doing uh, affiliate marketing for them. So we're not incentivizing people to bet. Um, but for those that are for, for those who are for those who are interested, um, we have betting content for them. 
in the case of ticketing, same thing. I mean, like what sports fan isn't trying to go to a game? So uh, again, an opportunity for us to make money um, and also provide value uh, back to the readers. And so we do not have a partner right now, but it is something that we are very interested uh, in pursuing. So look out for that. Um, and then I would say on the world of uh, merchandising collectibles, I'll, I'll key in on collectibles. Um, merchandise has you know one very dominant player in fanatics. Um, so we have, we don't have an offering yet, but aside from some some really nice like athletic tchotchkes in uh, the New York Times store, which you could buy after this call. If you go to collectibles, this is something that um, personal passion point. I could absolutely see us doing something. in. again, we have. Um, a very affluent audience by virtue just of us charging for sports, um, which is a pretty unique thing. Um, so something that plays well in the world of collectibles. So, you know, my dream is the, you know, next time the Honus Wagner or Mickey Mantle Ricky card goes up for auction that you'll see it on the athletic. Um, so those are, you know, think of those like utilities for sports bands. Um, the world of IP is just broad and I don't like viewing these things in terms of uh, distinct revenue lines versus how can we develop franchises with distinct communities that follow them that can live in many places. So I think you can go awry when you look at things like newsletters and podcasts and streaming and video in isolation. So, you know, I, I give, if I look at the publishing industry and I look at some successes here, like I was trying to give nods to some of the competitors. Like I think what Box has done with Explained has been pretty remarkable. Like if I see that little yellow splash of paint, like even if Explained isn't there, I know what it is. And I know what I'm going to get, whether I'm watching a documentary on, um, documentary on Netflix or if I'm looking at a piece of branded content on Box's site or listening to their podcast that all feels very consistent. So it's like, I have a relationship with explain anywhere it goes. Same thing with complex and hot ones. What an amazing piece of IP can live in many places. Clearly they've done really well with it. Um, and I feel like I have a relationship with it no matter where it lives. And so I see the same thing for us. Um, how do we, how do we lean into some of our top talent around these sports that we cover with some of the best journalists in the world? and build communities around things like a no dunks, like an athletic football show, like our new NBA newsletter um, franchise that we launched yesterday called The Bounce with uh, Shams, our uh, top, top NBA reporter right at the center of it. And then think about how can those things be expressed in things like a streaming relationship, uh, a new podcast, a new newsletter, an event, et cetera. So um, the because we have a lot of stuff coming in this space. Um, I would say the, the best thing to point to now uh, as an example is our uh, our football franchise TIFO, which is sits out of the UK. Um, it's kind of like, it's, it's thoughtful. It's like where, where being informative and entertaining comes together, um, expressed through animation. Um, in soccer, has a huge audience on YouTube. It has a podcast. It has written content on the Athletic. Um, this is something where you can see more opportunity to express that in new places, and then think about replicating that model in these other other sports, like I just mentioned with the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, F1, which is coming in March. Also very excited about. Didn't talk about that, but certainly 
when it comes to kicking the door down. That's one of the forces behind it. Um, so yeah, a lot coming in that space. Um, if I look, if I look a few years out, I want to see us with a portfolio of of IP that not only is playing a big part in the athletic, having this successful, huge future, being one of the most influential sports media companies in the world, but also IP that people could have independent relationship with, with, with whether or not you're a reader of The Athletic. Kind of the same way that ESPN 30 for 30 has just crushed it. Definitely that franchise model that Makes a lot of sense for successful media companies. Um, quickly, though, you had mentioned that you don't do affiliate marketing around sports betting or around ticketing yet. Um, why is that? Because I feel like, especially in sports betting, affiliate revenue can be extremely lucrative for media companies. Well, we have a betting partnership, and we're excited about it. Um, so that continues. I just think in the, the world of affiliate marketing, it's just something we've chose not to pursue at the moment. I'm I've learned now to never say never on anything. Um, so it's just, you know, somewhere to programmatic. You've got off and on and programmatic is on right now and affiliate is off. Um, but it could be something we pursue in the future. I will be sure to stay tuned to all of those upcoming uh, endeavors. But thank you so much, Seb, for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate you being so open about your next two-year outlook to profitability and and how you're you know approaching ads right now thank you so much for taking the time thanks thanks for having me and thank you for listening to the digiday podcast we'll be back next week with another episode